This is Reverse Deception Radio on the Veritas Radio Network, Crusade Channel. Ever since I was a young boy, I played the silver ball. From Soho down to Brighton, I must have played them all. But I ain't seen nothing like him in any amusement hall. The deaf, dumb, and blind kid sure plays a mean pinball. He stands like a statue, becomes part of the machine. Feeling all the bumpers, always playing clean. He plays by intuition, I've never seen him fall. The deaf, dumb, and blind kid sure plays me. From radio size speakers. But my dad's pretty big, so I don't think he could fit in the radio. He ain't got no distractions, don't hear no buzzes and bells, don't see no lights a flashing. He plays by sense of smell, he always gets a replay. The digit counters fall That deaf, dumb, and blind kid sure plays a mean pinball He's a pinball wizard, it has to be a twist A pinball wizard, he's got such a sunrist He's a Welcome to Reverse Deception Radio. This is your host, Gregory Junk Bond Carpenter, and today I'm here with Adam Roosevelt from Virginia. He's running for delegate in the assembly here in Virginia for the 49th District in Arlington. He's a very interesting gentleman, a lot of experience, and he's only 24, right? 24. 24 years old. Adam, thanks for coming in. Why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself and your background? Thank you, Gregory, for having me. My name is Adam Roosevelt. I am in the United States military, and, and I spent a lot of time serving the country. In 2010, I essentially joined the military as an information technology specialist, and I continued forward with a lot of information technology, routers, help desk functions, fiber optics, everything that you need to understand just the general aspect of technology. And then I got a chance to apply that knowledge uh, in Afghanistan in 2011, and where I was serving a lot of the ISAF folks out there, and for members who don't know what the ISAF is, International Security Assistance Force, and we were out there essentially working with a lot of the different nations to provide those information technology services. And in 2012, when I returned back to the United States, essentially I was in Fort Drum, New York, where it's negative 30, and uh, it's very cold out there. And uh, it's very beautiful to uh, have engaged in that type of climate, built a lot of strength, but uh, moving forward, I was able to get orders to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization where I served with the NATO forces, particularly working on mobile cybersecurity, and I got a chance to kind of articulate cyber from an international perspective, looking at different things and working with different nations. I ended up for deploying to Afghanistan again the second time where essentially I was working with the Afghan forces and cybersecurity and I got a chance to start rolling out different policies and looking at the SANS framework, the critical security controls, we helped the Afghan forces understand how to manage a cybersecurity infrastructure where I was able to advise uh, the Ministry of Defense and kind of help them move forward, uh, particularly with that effort there. And we were successful with helping transition control to Jeroa government of Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. That was really, really healthy for me and that was somewhere around the time where I got my bachelor's degree uh, information technology management and that was a very nice uh, day because essentially my diploma came in the mail all crumbled up in Afghanistan. But uh, Typical military mail. Indeed so, indeed so. Um, so I got that, I came back to the United States and I decided it was time for me to explore. 
of the private sector, and I got my first private sector job at the Department of Justice National Security Division, where I got a chance to start taking a look at the certification and accreditation of national security systems and, and really how the National Institute of Standard and Technology plays a vital role uh, with certifying these systems and making sure that they're protected from just different factors of, of attack, whether internal or external. Um, so I did that for about nine to ten months, and I really got a chance to represent the uh, Chief Information Security Officer with the DOJ and then really got a chance to kind of interact with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and partners, and that was a very, very good experience for such a young person. So I wanted something more a little aggressive, and I decided that the time was to transition to the Department of Homeland Security, still private sector, and I came in uh, working for the intelligence and analysis, and that was a very healthy, it still is very healthy uh, pay, of course, and also engagement. So I was able to do that, and uh, certification accreditation of uh, those systems, and interacting with a lot of folks uh, within the uh, in intelligence community. So that was very helpful for me to get that exposure. Being political, I was forward promoted by the government, essentially informally, to uh, start communicating with all of the communities, if you will, to start talking about cybersecurity, start talking about information sharing requirements and what that does for the mission. So that was something that has put me in a position to help out not just the Department of Homeland Security, but all the folks that are in that bubble. So cybersecurity as it pertains to protecting these systems and cybersecurity as it pertains to information sharing requirements and cybersecurity from a national security perspective and how that enables missions. So that's my experience essentially thus far and, and I own my own small business so that's always very helpful. So this is one of the reasons why we had Adam come on here because he is a computer geek like the rest of us. We like to have folks like this come on who know what they're talking about when it comes to IT and uh, system security things like that. Because he's in a unique situation here, because he's, he's, he's trying to be a delegate here in Virginia, he's trying to make a difference. He's trying to stand up and do all those things that we talk about. We want people who are action people. And we've talked about this before. Adam's one of those guys. Every time I turn on my Facebook, this guy is out doing something. He's always somewhere. Sometimes it's talking about cybersecurity, sure. But the rest of the time, he's talking about issues that are important and important to Virginians in our country here not out in Missouri, not somewhere else. He's got a really good focus about people, and he's very uh, personable and very interesting person, I might add. Uh, now, we, we talked a little bit before we came on the air here, so I want to talk about Italian food because you were in Italy for a while, <laughs> and I want to know what your favorite Italian dish is. Well, that's an easy one. I uh, spent a lot of time, three years in Italy, a young lady down the street, uh, grandmother of the Tutino family, they used to make lasagna. That just so happened to be my favorite dish, and if you haven't had home, homemade lasagna from the Italians, Lago Patria is the area you need to go. So that's my favorite dish. <laughs> I like that. That's one of my favorite dishes, too. I make a mean uh, linguine and white clam sauce. Nice. So, um, yeah, I, I know a little bit about Italian cooking, and I'm not, I'm not the expert, but <laughs> I can cook two things in life. One is linguine with white clam sauce, and the other is hot dogs. So, <laughs> but I'm Irish, so I can boil potatoes too. So, I'm I'm very uh, uh, how do you call it? Uh, diverse? Mm -hmm. I'm diverse, multicultural food uh, consumption: American, Italian, and Irish. Well, cool. Okay, so I got the hard question out of the way. Now the now the real question: Who is Adam Roosevelt? Who are you? Where do you want to go with your life? What are you looking to do? Well, you know, who am I? I'm just a young man from uh, Virginia, born and raised in Norfolk. Uh, I had to fight to get out. Uh, I, I was very successful at doing that. Uh, what do I want to do? Uh, maybe in 10 years, I see myself being a senator in Virginia. I see myself, you know, being the leader of the movement, essentially, for the conservative party. And I, I think that that's something that I've always had my eyes on. So that's who I am, a person who's a patriot, a person who loves the country, a person who is willing to continue to fight and uh, do whatever it takes to protect this country. So I'm just a patriot who was born in Virginia and is trying to do the right thing. Uh, so I want to ask you a couple of questions about your interest in civil rights. And I know that you have a, a, a view that people should be treated equal, people should have the same rights as anybody, it doesn't matter uh, religion, sex, race, it doesn't matter who you are. You, you start out with the same opportunities in life, but not everybody's treated the same. And I want you to tell me just a little bit about you know, your experiences in life, what's happened to you, and what's given you the perspective that you have. That's a good question. You know, being an African-American, uh I got a chance to see uh, a lot of different things in life. I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, and I was 
I was very young at the time and I didn't quite understand uh, racism or the different forms of racism being a product of my environment uh, at the time. And just one of the things that I remember when I was a kid in Ocean View uh, in Norfolk, Virginia was a particular day when I was walking down the street with a friend of mine. Uh, I won't say her name, but there were two African Americans, me being one of them, and another young lady who was Caucasian. And uh, it was about 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, and we were walking down the street, and a police officer pulled up uh, beside us. It was two of them in the vehicle. And the police officer told uh, the young lady to walk in one direction and told me and my friend to walk in the other direction uh, before we before we parted ways, uh, he told her uh, that she shouldn't be hanging around people like people like us, uh, whether it was because we looked a certain way. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, we did end up going in the opposite directions, and uh, that was the first time I had experienced uh, any form of racism as a child. And I was very young, uh, living with my father at the time, and uh, that was one of the times in which I had experienced something. Now, the second time, uh, essentially, I was young man coming from school. Uh, I uh, was in the store, two or three of us coming after school. We had walked into the store, 7-Eleven, corporate store. One of the ladies at the counter, she said, uh, you know, only two of you in the store a lot of, at a time. And I didn't quite understand essentially what that meant or, or what, why there was a number of, of people that could essentially be in the store at a certain time, but one of my friends who uh, was a little more aggressive, he got a little violent, started pushing over a few things, and I still didn't understand what was going on. And I think that he understood that maybe there was a form of racism of why there couldn't be a certain number of, of young African Americans in a store at a time. So that's some of the experiences that I've encountered, uh, and that's just my childhood. As you grow up, you start to see different things. Um, but I think for this short session, I think those two stories will carry enough weight just to provide the world something of an experience and what, what I saw as a child. Yeah, I think they do. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that these types of things are still happening today. Some things have changed. Some things have gotten better. There's still some things that haven't. Now, remember, Mr. Roosevelt here is 24. This has only happened in the last few years. This type of stuff is still happening. Have we not gotten any better? Really? Are we still, are we still with, the, with the mindset that certain people are inferior or certain people need to be treated a certain way? This, this is, I find this ridiculous, number one, very appalling. Now, I was mentioning before, off mic before with uh, Adam here, that I had an incident that happened to me that I can't repeat, but that was the one time in my life that I was the victim of racism. And I got the opportunity to glimpse into somebody's world who deals with this on a more regular basis. And I got to tell you, I felt like garbage. Even though I knew I wasn't garbage, it completely destroyed my morale for the next, I'd say, two weeks or so. And it was just one simple little incident. And I let it affect me that much. Can you imagine how thousands of people who deal with this every day are affected in the same way. It's all about getting out there and empowering the people in the neighborhoods to make them feel, make them believe that they can change the way they live. I think we really owe it to them to let them know that they're just as good as anybody else. And I don't care what race, I don't care what religion, it doesn't matter. We, we need to be accountable for the people in our charge. And so this is one of the reasons that Adam's running in the 49th district. Uh, who's your opponent up there? So my opponent is actually the minority whip. His name is Alfonso Lopez. <laughs> All right, folks, if there was ever a better reason to replace somebody. Alfonso Lopez is not my favorite person in Virginia. I didn't realize he was from the 49th. <laughs> Holy cow. Now, I knew he was the, I knew he was the whip, too. Um, the, he's not a nice guy. I'll put it like that. And and that's just local Virginia politics. Everybody knows it here. This That's no secret around here in Virginia. If you're from Virginia, you know the deal. So I would, I would 
urge you to, if you live in the Arlington area, please come out and make a difference. Let's whip the whip. <laughs> At least get him out of here. At least get, get some new blood in there where we can actually do something. Because he ran on the, uh, there was an empty seat last last time, right? He didn't run against anybody. In 2013, there was an independent Green Party candidate, but there was, we've never put a Republican up against him. Yeah, okay, that's what it was. He didn't have a Republican candidate against him. Okay, that's, I knew something like that. Yeah, folks, we, we, we need change here in Virginia like anywhere else. And Northern Virginia is, I like to say Northern Virginia is becoming the Socialist People's Democratic Republic of Northern Virginia. We've had a lot of people from Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey with a lot of left-wing ideology that left those areas because taxes were too high. Mm -hmm. They came down here, they're populating in Arlington, Alexandria, some in Loudoun County, Fairfax, Prince William County. What are they doing? They're calling for higher taxes. Mm -hmm. The same reason that they left the Northeast in the first place is the reason they're coming here. What say you about higher taxes? Well, I tell you what, I take the tax. You never ever will support uh, moving taxes in a direction in which there's more um, being imposed on citizens in Arlington or even Fairfax. Yeah. I think we got enough money currently as the taxes stand in Arlington and Fairfax, and we should start focusing on balancing our budgets and allocating money to programs that are going to help advance our economic strength in Arlington and Fairfax and I do not believe in increasing taxes and I will not support the increase of taxes in Arlington or in Fairfax. Yeah, that, that's probably a good idea. Those guys, they're raking in a lot of money right now up there. They have, uh, I think Fairfax has the largest budget in all of Virginia for county, county programs and stuff like that. They're raking in a lot of money. All right, well let me ask you about what do you think about health care, the future of health care for Virginians? We have a lot of folks, specifically in Virginia. Let me take a step back for a second. I did a, um, a health care study on homeless people in Prince William County. I found that we're way below the national average. But most of the other counties in Virginia are at or above the national average for homelessness or people living below the poverty level. In those situations, you have a lot of people that can't afford any type of medical care when they, when they need it in many situations. Now, there's the federal law that says if you're within 250 feet of an emergency room, you know, you have to receive treatment. They'll work out the cost or whatever later on, but they can't deny you treatment. But a lot of these people, they're not even close to a hospital. But the hospital's not even within 10, 15, 20 miles of where they are, maybe 30 or 40 miles sometimes. What's your, what's your position? How do you feel, uh, and more importantly, what do you think is the right way to go about uh, trying to extend or help folks when they need care? That's a good question, Greg, and I think this is one of the most important issues currently affecting not just the nation, but more so focusing on Virginia. We have to provide a solution for citizens who need to need to, need help, need to go to the hospitals. And a lot of those low-income families who don't have anywhere to go, the answer in America is not to abandon them. They need to be able to take care of their families, get those checkups, to get that medicine that they need and get that treatment. You know, there's, they have to have surgery. There's a lot of different conditions out there that need to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And we should not separate our middle-class citizens from being able to take part and just something that's owed to them as an American citizen. Mm -hmm. uh, we, what we can do, I believe, uh, moving forward is the federal government hasn't figured it out yet. I think that Virginia can take a step forward by essentially focusing on expanding these services so that at least temporarily we can get these Virginians taken care of until we find a better solution. But we cannot provide no solution. We have to provide a solution. Yeah, we have, we have in Virginia, we have a lot of people that, now I don't know that, you know, quote, having medical insurance is the right answer because people with insurance don't need insurance sometimes they don't want insurance like my brother he's a material engineer he lives in texas he never had health insurance he never wanted health insurance he still doesn't want health insurance he doesn't get sick nothing now he's forced to have health insurance through the uh, affordable health care act that's his situation but you have people on the other end who are going to be forced into a situation where they have to have some type of health care policy, but it's not going to benefit them because they, they can't use it in the way that 
the people who wrote the bill intended for those types of things to be used. We ended up in Virginia with a lot of people that can't use the health care bill, you know, the way it was supposed to be used, and they do not have health care here. They, they don't have a way to, in many cases, they can't even get to a clinic. You know, some of the places out in the rural areas, I just found this last week, I thought it was amazing that the doctor still goes to their house. You know, here in this, you know, in the city, the populated area, <laughs> we look at that and say, you know, that's 1940s, that's 1930s. These people can't even get a doctor now. I think you're right. Virginians have to look out for Virginians. We have to be able to take care of our own. I think that's one of the most important things we could be doing. And it doesn't matter if it's my son, your daughter, my neighbor's kid, or whoever. We should have enough charity in our heart to take care of our neighbors and make sure that they have those basic needs covered. I want to thank you for coming on and spending this time with me. Great insight into your mind. I appreciate the uh, the time and the effort. Folks, this was coordinated in a most astute manner, I have to admit. And we were able to get together the drop of a hat to do this because Mr. Roosevelt is a very, very busy man. Adam, I want to thank you for coming on with thank me. Thank you, Gregory. I appreciate that. And I'd like to do this again pretty soon, if that's okay. Absolutely. Great. been a reverse deception special feature king size truth from radio size speakers all right that was uh adam roosevelt running for office up in the 49th district we recorded that uh, earlier in the week and it was amber's idea to make it a special feature so that's what we did and kudos to amber for always being part of the show that kid is so engaged with me up here uh, I love her to death, besides the fact that she can bake. Now, and I found out she can cook, too, which is even more amazing. So welcome to Reverse Deception for the live portion of the show today. We're going to give you the call-in number because we've got a very special guest in studio today. 844-527-8723. 844-527-8723. Today we have in studio, again, we have the uh, the honor of having Steve Bongart, uh, retired uh, FBI Supervisory special agent. Yep. For what, 30, 20, 25, 30 years? How long was this? Uh, so I was 20 years. 20 in years. The FBI. Yep. 20 years. Yep. Beautiful. Yeah. I was, uh, my government service obviously was before that. I was a fighter pilot in the Navy for about eight years, but uh, 20 years in the FBI, which can be, depending on how you look at it, maybe 40 years in any other organization. <laughs> 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 nice. <laughs> and the one in good ways and bad, right? Yes, yep. there are. Yep. There, yep. there are good and bad. Uh, one reason we had Steve come back on is because uh, he was uh, assigned as the lead investigator for the manpad analysis for the uh, TWA Flight 800 uh, investigation way back in 1995, I think. It was. 1998. Oh, you're right. 1995. You're right. 1996, actually. July 17th, 1996. 96. Yeah, right. Yep. Sweet. So, uh, and, and Steve worked that whole thing uh, with the, and then, so there was a lead investigator for each different aspect of consideration yep. uh, on what they were looking at and what they were trying to rule out or uh, identify as a possible reason why TWA Flight 800 uh, went down in the first place. So I'll give a little background first, and then we'll get into some of the other uh, items sure. that we had uh, identified here today. Uh, again, if you want to call in, it's 844-527-8723. If, if any questions at all uh, about TWA Flight 800 or hacking or anything like that, we're open for business today. We're up and running completely. Uh, so TWA Flight 800 was uh, a flight that took off and was out off the shore of uh, Long Island when it exploded in midair, it broke apart into two pieces, and the two pieces tailed off in different directions. Uh, there was cases of uh, statements from witnesses that some people had seen uh, something going up. Other people saw things going down. There was very, very, uh, there was a wide array of eyewitness accounts of exactly what happened, and nobody could really put their finger on what happened uh, with the flight and why it exploded. 
several different theories came up. The CIA came up with a very, I would say, I, I learned it to be a very expensive movie dramatization of what happened. That ended up being very problematic, I think, in the long run, right? I well, think. it didn't yep. seem very realistic. Yep. Uh, the, the, defied the physics, uh, mm -hmm. just the basic physics of mm -hmm. uh, the situation in the first place. Mm -hmm. You don't have a plane that has no nose that it's, it's increased drag by, I, I can't tell you how much it's increased drag by, but speed up. And then gain altitude, that that doesn't it doesn't work like that, right? So there was um, a lot of different uh, ideas, and from that grew out a bunch of different uh, conspiracy theories. And con you know, I, I hate saying conspiracy theories, but to this day, I still get. Uh, let's see, I've been retired for a, a year, but I mean, up until the last uh, year, you know, two thousand and fifteen in July, I was still called by. Um, different uh, members of the press to try to talk to me around the anniversary and uh, obviously as a agent i have to go through uh, uh public affairs and was always that was always turned down for no reason now as a civilian again there's obviously there's certain things i can talk about pretty much everything with regards to that case okay yeah yeah because I, th I think part of the issue was eyewitness testimony. I was a brand new agent at the time. Uh, I had just gotten out of Quantico uh, in April 1st of 19, uh, uh, 1996 was my first day in the New York office. And I was uh, that weekend, I think it was a Saturday night, if I remember right. It was, um, I was going through my uh, uh, temporary duty as uh, being in the operations center when that happened. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, knowing a little bit about planes, having been a fighter pilot, and my subject matter expertise was man pads, uh, missiles. When it happened, uh, uh, Mr. Kalstrom, assistant director, who did a phenomenal job of uh, leadership, I think, through, through that, uh, said, uh, you know, get, get your you-know-what out there and uh, start talking <laughs> to people uh, about what they saw. Now, Kalstrom was the FBI agent in charge of the whole investigation. Right, yeah. He, was, he was stationed out of the New York office. Yeah, he was the assistant director in charge of the New York office. And in any major case like that, even though there's a case agent on that case or a series of case agents, the director or assistant director is asking all the questions and, and is ultimately accountable. And so he was a, he was a person. But... The you know the the it, as a brand new agent I came face to face with the reality of eyewitness and investigation. I, initially there was maybe uh, 190 or 200 we believed uh, people seeing what they believed was a flare, uh, and we didn't know if that meant flare going up to the plane, flare after the plane came apart, and so we had to go back and interview myself and my partner at the time uh, had to go back and interview most of those 190 200 people again. Wow. Yeah, to find out exactly what they saw. Um, and uh, there are a lot of problems with the case. Um, and, and my belief is we were trying to prove a negative. We still don't know really what happened to that, to that plane. Um, but there was no friendly fire missile. I mean, you'd have to be looking at one of the guys that took place, uh, took part in the conspiracy, right, if there was a conspiracy. But there's a lot of issues of, of 190 witnesses, I would say there's probably 10 to this day that I don't know what they saw. The 180 people, I can prove away at least to what they saw. I think they saw the plane in some form of it falling apart. Mm -hmm. But there's probably 10 people to this day that I can't explain what they saw. Now realizing eyewitnesses usually are bad anyway, uh, what they saw might not have been accurate, right? So, um, uh, right. But we went out and we talked to all, all, um, a lot of those people, and it, it had a lot of bells and whistles, that, that investigation. We started looking at a lot of different things that were appearing in the sky, which at the time, if you remember, in 1995, 1996, very popular show was The X-Files. <laughs> so as a brand-new agent, uh, and my partner and I uh, became known as, uh, in a way, jokingly, Mulder and Scully, because there were other things being seen in the sky <laughs> at that time that... Um, you know, that, that, that Kalstrom wanted to know, is there something flying around in the air that's hitting these, that's hitting these planes? Mr. Kalstrom wanted to know that. And so we, we looked into that. We looked into a bunch of different other possibilities, electromagnetic weapons, uh, gas, uh, excretions from the earth that were caught on fire, uh, all different kinds of things. Meteor strike. We looked at all those different types of things trying to prove a negative. So that, and, and that's, that's a sign of an experienced investigator. Uh, I, I did, um, Something similar. I ran counterintelligence investigations at the uh, Army Research Labs and uh, in conjunction with some other agencies. 
which are more limited in scope in what they do and what they look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still never want to leave any stone unturned. I, I don't like using idioms uh, very often, but in this case, it, it makes a lot of sense because so many people were involved. There's so many victims that touch so many mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. uh, across the country or across the world that it's really not so easy to coordinate a response. It's not so easy to take care of the victim's families. It's not so easy to possibly shield some of the people from what they saw. You know, um, I mentioned a couple times when when, uh, American Airlines uh, 587 tanked off out of JFK Mm -hmm. after takeoff in 2001, November 2001. I was one of the guys who happened to actually be down there. Uh, it was my first day off uh, after 9-11. I actually mm. got a day off. I was home. And the next thing I know, you know, we hear this because I lived over near JFK. Uh, so I was minutes away. And, of course, I went over there. And, just, you know, it was a horrible sight. There's bodies all over the place, mm. strewn all over the, the ground, the, the, the water, everywhere. Mm. So I can only imagine what TWA 800 uh, crime scene, I call it crime scene. So I guess that's still appropriate would look like, mm-hmm. uh, which would be just as bad, if not worse, considering it was a higher altitude. So you're gonna have a much larger debris field than, mm-hmm. uh, American 587 had. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and that just gives you much more that you're going to have to look into many more opportunities because you have more witnesses. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's going to open up many more possibilities that you're going to have to investigate. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was like everything else. It's usually a bunch of different factors. And one of the factors, if, if you were to pick a time at night when this tragedy happened, regardless of what really caused it, um, I know the official uh, belief is that it was a center fuel tank. However, the problem there is they were never able to get the same kind of detonation that occurred versus deflagration that would have broke apart the center fuel tank when they tested it they would they didn't come even close i believe, think it was an order of magnitude 10 times less than what they what they needed but if you were to pick a time at night right when if you're east of that site looking west you see the setting setting sun if you're west looking east you're looking at a plane that's flying into the nighttime there were so many different visual backgrounds as to what the witnesses saw anyway, based on where they were located. Right. That made right. it very, very hard to try to compile what, what everyone is, what everyone is, was seeing, um, which made it extremely difficult at the time to figure out what, what, what people saw. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think we all think of memory as being like a hard drive. Right, we see something right. that goes into our hard drive, and and it, when we regurgitate it back, it's going to be pure, right? <laughs> Zeros and ones, and everything's going to be fine. But n- nothing could be further from the truth with memory, right? The more we access it, the more we play with it, the more we change it, the more we talk to people about their observations, the more we think about what we might have saw, seen, and and put it in the context of things we've seen before: uh, fireworks, flares, other plane crashes, our thoughts of what plane crashes would look like based on movies. We're really playing with that memory and changing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't just deal with plane crashes. It deals with terrorism attacks, uh, holdups at banks. Um, yeah, any type of traumatic experience anything. will be changed by uh, the proximity of that memory to another similar type right? of a thing sure. that you had seen. So sure. anytime you see something on TV about, say, you know, there's a terrorist attack and you're, you're watching – uh, some characterization of what's happening mm-hmm. on TV. Some, you know, pick any any TV show that has terrorists in it, and then you actually are involved in something, and you're asked to recall what happened because of your your familiarity with the television show and what's mm-hmm. happened in the television show. Odds are you're going to remember more from the TV show yep. than you are from the actual event itself. Right. Uh, I just pulled up an article here that I was going to read off. Um, read off of um, just a little while ago. I thought it was interesting. If you're just joining us, this is Greg Carpenter, Reverse Deception Radio here on the Veritas Radio Network. Uh, We're talking to Steve Bongart, retired FBI special agent. Uh, You can call us 844-527-8723. Right now we're talking about TWA Flight 800 and memory. The ability of the person to remember exactly what they saw versus what they think they saw. 
right? It's very fragile. It's a very fragile thing. It certainly is. And uh, a study just completed here just recently, and the title from BBC says, Rules of Memory Beautifully Rewritten. <laughs> and we'll get into the, the, the gist of what happens here. I'm not going to read the whole article or anything like that, but uh, it was a U.S. and Japanese team were doing research, and they found that the brain doubles up by making two memories of any event. Initially, it makes two memories of any event. One is a short-term memory, and the, there's another one that starts to convert for long-term memory, for storage in your brain. Now, the one that's the short-term memory is more accurate. That's the one that recalls and accounts for everything that happened within that short window. The long-term one can be changed and manipulated based on previous experience or anything that's happened to you emotionally, physically, psychologically, anything like that in your life. And that's the one that most people recount. If you're, And that's why it's so important, if, if you're conducting an investigation, to get to folks immediately. Uh, this is what I found. You know, if, if you get to them within right. two or three days, their account, their ability to recall exactly what happened in, in, uh, in the incident is much better than if even if you're one week uh, removed from that incident right. itself. And and in this case, you had everybody turning on their television and seeing what other people were reporting having seen at the time, right? So their two or three day memory is not even fresh. It's not even preserved. Yeah. It's being immediately tainted by it's what they're seeing already. on on uh, on television, which is which is very interesting. And one of the things I learned, so I was a profiler for about eight years at the FBI and, and did a lot of uh, work in detecting deception and how people's stories might change and what's a, uh, let's say, a, a non-nefarious reason why people's stories change. Because uh, it's not always because they're guilty, right? It's because they're, they have bad memory. Yeah, they, they forget. They yeah. just, or, they, or they forget. One of the things that uh, that I think we've learned is over time you remember things based on causation, right? I went to the store because I had to get milk, and we were out of milk that day, and it was it was the reason normal day that I'd go to the store. But when something happens immediately, kind of playing along with what you're talking, short term memory, when something happens immediately, uh, a good indicator of veracity, somebody telling you the truth, is the description, right? The descriptive words. I went to the store that day. It was a beautiful day. I remember the wind and the sun on my face. And when I got out and closed the door, I smelled the, the parking lot, right? It was just fresh <laughs> asphalt, those kind of things. So immediately when something happens, descriptive words are usually a very good indicator of deception. But over time, causation words and why we remember things are usually good indicators of deception so or, right. or or that actually something happened so over time if somebody's description of an event gets better chances are their memory <laughs> is not accurate it could be because they're trying to not tell the truth to an fbi agent or it could be because there are lots of other things going on um just bad memory but if descriptive uh, descriptions get better. If descriptions get better over time with descriptive words and, and sensing words, it's usually not a great indicator of deception. So it's very consistent with what I thought. I, I had a uh, uh, one of the professors one time, uh, researchers um, that I was interviewing one time, uh, his account of an incident actually got did get better over time. Mm -hmm. And it took a while to figure it out, but you know, his first account was, I got up in the morning, I walked the dog, I came back home, I went to bed. Essentially, that was the discussion we had. Mm -hmm. And then the second time I interviewed him, he had all of these incredible details filled in along the way. I got up this morning, I went to the bathroom, brushed my teeth, and then I went downstairs. The dog was waiting for me. He was wagging his tail. He was so happy to see me. And it became a completely... Uh, embellished story mm -hmm. over the first account, and this was it was obviously there there was a good amount of deception involved, mm -hmm. and the reason for it was because he had the onset of Alzheimer's. Mm. Okay, and he yep. didn't want people to think that he was losing it, he was coping. Yeah, right. So it yeah. became a coping uh, sure. situation for him. Yeah, uh, to be able to essentially save face so he mm -hmm. could stay working in his job because if he couldn't remember what he was doing, right then he would be forced to retire. Right. And it doesn't mean that you can't think about something that happened a long time ago and greater details will come to you, but right. usually they're more causation details. You remember other people being there because of reasons why it occurred, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, you're not going to remember something specifically 
better because you remembered your best friend suddenly wore a green sweater or a red sweater and that's what came to you that's a descriptive type thing so <laughs> very very interesting so but especially for eyewitness accounts for TW800 it was it was uh, an eye-opening experience not to be any kind of a pun it was a horrible horrible tragic accident and uh, or something else that we still don't know what uh, what happened um, the one thing I did learn from a terrorism perspective, it was my first case, major case mm -hmm. um, for terrorism. And one of the things I, I did learn that I remember at the time, one of the supervisors that I was working for, a supervisory special agent, Tom Lang, said, he goes, there's no intel. Uh, now, when these things happen, you get all kinds of people calling in, right, talking about claiming right. uh, everybody did responsibility it. right everybody did and there were some crazy ones like i remember particularly in this case i think there was something about somebody was calling and claiming it was an issue because of a renaming of i want to say this is how i remember it again talking about memory the pillsbury doughboy <laughs> at the time there was some crazy claim and there were other claims but there was no real valid claim or threat stream or intel stream from terrorism and tom lang immediately said i don't i don't think this is going to be terrorism because there's no uh, intel or threat stream. And what was very interesting is in all the other cases I worked after that, 9-11, uh, USS Cole attack, uh, post 9-11, uh, different things, there is always some kind of a threat stream. Um, and every time I was doing my normal terrorism work after they closed or, or put it pending TW-800, I'd always ask the subject, do you how about TW800? Is there anything you missed? Is there anything that you know of? Did you hear anything while you were over in the camps in Afghanistan or whatever? And I never had a positive wow. response. So, from a traditional kind of a terrorist attack, um, we never had that threat stream. Um, you see, we get uh, and we'd have the same thing in a counterintelligence investigation. There'd be uh, we would call it uh, chatter, mm -hmm. is what we would mm -hmm. call it. And I found that they use that also for. Uh, uh, national intel stuff, but the the chatter that we would see would be uh, collaboration, corroboration, or planning to blame a certain individual. Uh, there was forethought of malice, right? Uh, that was being planned the whole time, and these things would go back and forth, not necessarily in open forms back in the uh, mm -hmm. late nineties, two thousands or so, but they would be back and forth in emails, mm -hmm. and these people would they would put everything down there, what they were planning on doing. They were going to set up this guy for this and this guy, and they would make sure that this guy took the fall and this guy had plausible deniability and they'd go right down the line. And you see all this increase in, uh, email traffic between specific groups. Mm -hmm. So kind of similar in a way to getting, uh, intelligence chatter or, or discussion out on the big board. But, um, I, I think it, 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 takes uh, it takes it gives an investigator a head start in where you should be looking it, it shouldn't it shouldn't bias you but it should help to improve your situational awareness of what's happening uh, at that very moment yeah no I, yeah, I definitely agree um, so if, uh, if you're just joining in now this is a uh, Greg Carpenter reverse deception radio I've got uh, special agent Steve Bongart uh, retired from the FBI. Uh, he was the lead investigator for the manpad aspect of TWA Flight 800 and worked several other cases, as you just heard him talk about. Uh, and if you'd like to, you give us a call here if you have questions for Steve or if you have a question for me. Uh, anything from hacking all the way down to any uh, horticultural skills you might want enhanced in your life. Uh, that must you be you. That's not me, horticultural skills. I'm going to drag Amber you. in here for that. She's <laughs> the one who does all the plants outside. Yeah, give Amazing. Us a, give us a call, 844-527-8723. Yeah, she just planted all these hostas and the daylilies wow. and stuff. like. She did it by herself. Wow. I don't need a gardener. <laughs> That's a skill set. Yeah. It's fun, I, I used to, um, uh, 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 great hacker, uh, a lot of you folks, you know, you've heard me mention him before, Angelo Bensavenga, great guy, magnificent, wonderful, great American, just great American guy. And uh, him and I would work for a team. And uh, the guy we worked for, his name was Sam. And that's as deep as we're going to get. But anytime we were introduced anywhere, uh, Angelo was introduced as a guy who cuts his grass, and I was introduced as a guy who does the bushes. <laughs> that was your cover story. That was it. That was all it was. 
<laughs> that's right. <laughs> it doesn't have to be, you know, super complicated to be a cover story. Yeah, but <laughs> right, right. You, you you don't want anybody to drill down on that any further, right? Maybe put a pair of shears in your hand and say, "Okay, Greg, tell me, show me." Right? <laughs> I can I can trim bushes. That's again. That's why I was that guy. <laughs> right, matched yep. up to my skill set. So. Um, let me deviate for one second because I want to cover one thing that happened uh, on uh, this Easter Sunday. Uh, Robert Taylor, and many of you don't know who he was, but many of you do know what he did. And he was a uh, computer scientist who worked at ARPA, which is the uh, Army Research uh, Programs Program Activity Network office. He's a guy who helped create the Internet. And he passed away. He was 85 years old. Contrary to popular belief, it was not Al Gore who created the, the Internet. Al Gore really didn't have much to do about anything with creating the Internet. It took smart people like Robert Taylor, and you can pull his uh, biography and the story of his life off the Hacker News, uh, hackernews.com. Uh, he contributed to many other uh, great inventions throughout his lifetime. And uh, I just want to take a minute and just let folks know that uh, he's no longer with us. He did pass away on uh, this Easter Sunday. And for everybody who celebrated Easter, I hope it was joyous. I hope it was wonderful. I hope it was very blessed for you all out there. Passover, too, right, I guess? Passover. And Passover. was Saturday. That's right. You know what I find interesting about Robert Taylor is, um, you know, when he did all this was in the 60s, right? Right. And um, one of the things that you know that I'm – that I, I really like to talk about and I'm very fascinated is, is the combination of computer and human behavior and, and mind. And so in the 60s, in the very beginning of him doing what he was doing, when I was reading through his biography, I was fascinated by there was a real keen awareness of the combination of the computer and the human brain and the human mind and how computers could be used to expand the mind and communicate right as people. And I think you know, for a long period of time, we kind of got away from that. Um, and I, now I think we're kind of coming back, right? People are realizing, and I don't know if it's because all of our kids and everyone were so tied to these Internet of Things devices, right, right. that we're all starting to be very aware of that um, moving in now. But I think things have gone away from that uh, over the last 30, 40 years, 50 years. And people like uh, Robert Taylor, they were they were pioneers in, in many fronts, and now we're coming back to the point that we got so caught up in the technology, but now we have to refocus on how it's affecting human behavior and how it's reaffecting I, all of us, right? Right, exactly. I, I just, um, you sort of saw my inbox here. I was just going through my mail, folks, before we came on the air today, and I had a request from uh, some organization to go give a presentation up at CMS, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. And, of course, I'll say yes because I like scaring them, first of all. <laughs> but number two is what the, uh, the, they had asked me last week uh, if I was going to speak at CMS again. And I just spoke there a little while ago, a few, few uh, months ago. If I went up there this time, what would I talk about? And I, I said, well, it's pretty simple. It's, it's the brain-machine interface mm. that is overcoming uh, our status quo right now, and people don't even see it coming. They don't know it's happening, but it is. It's happening so quickly. You know, I, I don't let my kids walk around with a device in their face all day long. I have been known to slap it out of their hands and then get yelled at by the boss because I have to go buy a new device. But the, the kid got the message, you know, <laughs> and I make them yep. wait at least two weeks or so yep. before I get a new device. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> right, there's huge advantages. I mean, you know, reading and, and phonics and the fact that kids are reading at three and four years of old, years of age now is fantastic because some of these devices, but there's a downside. It's sure. A edged sword. It cuts both ways. There's a huge downside. I, and I go back to the, uh, and I have, um, I have a picture of it. It's a, uh, uh, you know, the, the high school, uh, the eighth grade test. Uh, and it's uh, a page from, I think it's 1908 in a, um, and I want to say it's an Illinois or an Ohio uh, school book, and it has a, and it has the test written out, and part of it's in Latin, mm-hmm. and part of it's in Greek, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these are eighth graders, mm. so we've stopped teaching Latin, 
mm-hmm. and Greek to our grade schoolers. And with all the computers and all the effort and all the complaining from the, uh, the National Education Alliance and all these other organizations that they're doing a better job ever now than ever before, we're still teaching remedial English in college. Yeah, right. I mean, and if we were actually teaching PHP and Python and C++, that, maybe that would be one argument. Right. But we're not we're not we're not. That's not the right. language that I mean, obviously, more and more people and, and children and, and kids and young adults and, and jobs are becoming available in those. And, we, you know, we just can't fill them. But it hasn't taken over as much you right. know, from a baseline uh, perspective as as losing those languages and the ability to communicate, I wouldn't say, would you? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I don't think it's necessary to speak Greek and Latin, uh, but they're there is the need to expand the mind and use the mind in a better way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you're going to learn Python, if you're going to learn uh, HTML or XML or something like that, you're still learning another language. Right. You're not stuck in a monolinguistic situation. Every study I've ever read shows that the mind functions better and at higher levels mm-hmm. when you can speak more than one language mm-hmm. or when you can engage in more mm-hmm. than one language. Um, again, back to Amber, I like to use her as an example. <laughs> Bright kid. She came Good into kid. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, she is. <laughs> she she started school this year in seventh grade. She's in seventh grade, I think. I believe. I <laughs> 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 got a collection of kids. I can't in that range. She's in that range. It's like close that. enough. Right. And uh, one of her friends in class was deaf. Hmm. So she came over to me like the third day of class or so. She said, "Dad, I want to learn sign language. What can I do?" I said, "Okay." So I used to teach sign language. I learned from my neighbor who was deaf. Wow. And I had several books for mm-hmm. American Sign Language stacked up on the shelf over here. Mm-hmm. I said, here, take a look at these. And then you can go online and you can, you know, learn sure. how to do the signs. So three days later, she comes back and she's she says, can we have a conversation? I'm like, <laughs> she's fluent. I'm right like, we're in. having a conversation. <laughs> and she's relatively fluent. Wow. So um, just before Christmas, uh, the interpreter was out one day. Uh, couldn't make it. So... She sat in and interpreted for her friend already. Two months into That's this. That's impressive. She, yeah, she had enough that she could actually interpret. I'm thinking, like, you know, it took me how long? Um, yeah, I right. can't count, you know, forever almost to be able to uh, uh, sign e- mm-hmm. even respectfully. Mm-hmm. And she did it in two months. She had it, and she had it down pat. But that goes to show that the mind... Mm-hmm. Once you've added a second language, you know, her second language was music. Mm-hmm. Okay, music is a language, folks. Music's a language. It helps your mind. It really does. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about like Nirvana if you're studying for the board or something like that. You know, you, that's not going to help you. Okay, studies have shown that Mozart helps for that stuff. Okay, <laughs> so if if you're going to sit for uh, the bar exam, listen to Beethoven. Beethoven bar. Okay. Don't please don't listen to me first and the gimme gimmies. Don't don't do it. Okay, that that stuff is going to it, it's it. There's a time and a place for that stuff, and studying for the bar exam is not that. So, but music is another language. It teaches your mind to think and transcends the limitations of the single language barrier that people have. So, and I I thought it was interesting because. She had just picked up the clarinet the year before, and she was always interested in music, but she never started, and she never played or anything like mm-hmm. that. She picked up one of my old violins and would play around a little bit because she's left-handed, so everything was backwards. So that didn't work out. So she said, I want to do the clarinet, and immediately she jumped right on it, and she worked through the first few months or so and then became much more proficient for, you know, for uh, an 11 year old. Mm-hmm. And that opened the door. Once she was able to balance back and forth, read the music and things like that, that opened her up to being able to consume the basic sign language that she needed in a much quicker manner. It's the same with machine learning. You know, once, once you've added two separate languages and then three separate languages, the machine has a new way of consuming information and processing it and pushing it back out in a more comprehensive manner out on the back end. 
something that it could not do if it was just uh, if it was just consuming one language or we're just working in one language alone. And it, you know, and then there's there's so much has been written about the connection between uh, music and emotion, mm-hmm. right? And and right. we took, go back to memory and how the brain is connected to, and we could talk about this all day long, and we probably would and will. <laughs> but you, you know, um, if if you were to ask, you know, me what I had for breakfast, uh, you know, seven or eight years ago on a particular Tuesday, uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But if you were to ask me the day that, you know, my wife told me that, you know, she was pregnant and, and I, I would remember specifically (laughs) distinctly because it's a big emotionally laden moment. And so as music assists memory and, and gives that load to it, Mm -hmm. I think we, the brain will remember all those types of things too. And, and grows in, in a lot of different ways. So it's very, very, very interesting. Um, I totally, I, I believe it's, you know, a language in, in and of itself. A lot of a lot has been written about the dopamine hit, you know, that we get with all these devices too, that we know, you know, we know for the evolution of man that if we find out something new, like, you know, thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, we walk around a corner and there's a saber-toothed tiger there, right? We get a little dopamine hit because our body wants to remember that there's a saber-toothed tiger around that right. corner. So, we get the same thing on our devices now. When we learn something new, when we get something new, we we learn that there is. Uh, I get a new email. I get a new uh, offer, a new advertisement, or something. I, there is a little bit of a dopamine, a new message from from Gregory Carpenter. I get a little dopamine hit, and we get addicted yeah, in some this. level to this dopamine, you know, hit. Uh, and so it's very, very. That's this right here. It's the fishing attacks. Addictive, right? Certain. And we were we were talking about an article we were going to talk about today, and and this actually feeds in perfectly to that because when you get someone who sends you this great offer in the email or something that, you know, you just feel like you have to click on that. You're linked to that emotionally now because you see there's, there's something there from, and sometimes they can uh, uh, masquerade as somebody who's in your contacts. Mm-hmm. So you're getting a great offer, or a great deal. From I want my dopamine hit, right? I want to click on something and find something new. That's it. Even though I know it's something I shouldn't do, right? People have been trained. <laughs> They still click on the email. It's they something still, they're looking for. That's why the phishing and the spear phishing works. You know, it, it so works well. so well too. Yeah, it's it's one of the it's one of the it's the top way to get almost anybody. I have to tell you that in in all my time doing counterintelligence investigations, I have to think that it's almost always the more learned and the security people, the people that should know better that they're not supposed to click on the phishing email link mm-hmm. or open up that zip file that somebody sent them, you know, mm-hmm. in an email or any document at that point. Or and, and in some cases you tell them, you know, if you scroll the cursor over the email link, it's actually going to activate the code. So you don't even want to open the email. You just want to leave it sit. And they, okay, I got it. I understand that. That's, you know, that's really, really bad. I don't want to do that. But inevitably, it's always the same people that right. are, are committing the violation. And it's not, not again, it's not malicious. It's, it's just that, oh, my gosh, you know what? It's something. And, and then you get a different type of dopamine hit. <laughs> right. <laughs> because you're going to feel the emotion attached yep. to the drain. <laughs> right. In your body. Right. Yep. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to remember it was within the last couple of years, I think, um, I read that, uh, one of the studies and I don't, I don't remember the exact attribution, so I don't want to say what it is, but a major antivirus company put out a pretty good study that was done. And they said, even in the best organizations, the best cybersecurity organizations with the really locked down and training and the people have been really, uh, trained in a correct way where they feel the downside of the, of the negative uh, emotional content of when mm-hmm. they click on the wrong you know, link and everything. But even the best organization, you can only prevent maybe 90 to 95% of your people from clicking on that email, right? Wow. Which yep. There's still 5%, so you do the math, right? Depending on the size of your organization, what, what possibly could, could happen there. But um, you know, I think my mentality in, in dealing with cybersecurity now is trying to tell companies you can't prevent it from happening. Make your wall high, right, as best as you can. But 
your goal needs to be to get through the hack, mm -hmm. right? Get through the penetration because if the best organization can prevent spear phishing just 95% of the time, that 5% is going to come up, right? One out of 20 comes up one out of 20 times. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the mentality that you have to have. You have to be able to get through the hack. And you have to remember that people need that dopamine. They Throughout your day, you, you may not realize it on the surface, but your body needs the dopamine during the day. Right. So if you inadvertently do this or do that, you're actually ensuring that you're getting that dopamine hit that you're addicted to in the first place. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're trapped one way or another. Something's going to happen in your day and you're going to get your dopamine because you got to have it. And if it's hitting a phishing email or something else, you're going to do it. And it doesn't matter. And the interesting thing is, is it doesn't matter if it's positive or negative. Uh, the incident, if it has a positive or a negative outcome, it, it doesn't matter. You still get dispensed a certain amount of dopamine, and that's still the amount that your body needs. So you're still satisfying that basic need. So if you could find a way to regulate the dopamine consumption by the body, then I think you'd be able to take any type of phishing attack and put it on the shelf and say, okay, we're 100% secure right. <laughs> against phishing attacks. Yeah, good luck, right? Because <laughs> I think you'd have to burn out. You'd, you know, you'd have to find somebody who had, just has a uh, dopamine deficit. And in that particular case, there's a lot of other <laughs> physical ram ramifications of that. Sure. <laughs> you know? And you'd need a brain-machine interface to keep you going at that point. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, well, uh, thanks, folks, for uh, listening to Reverse Deception Radio today. Uh, I've had in studio today Steve Bongart, uh, retired FBI uh, agent, and we're going to have Steve back here in a few weeks again to talk about other things. So think about those uh, questions you want to ask him about uh, TWA Flight 800, 911, anything like that, uh, USS Cole attack, all those types of things. Uh, Steve's worked on these uh, different investigations, and He's uh, up and running, ready and willing and able to answer your questions. Uh, if you just want to play golf, just <laughs> shoot us a note. And <laughs> we'll be out to play golf wherever you're set up and ready to run at. Uh. I play less golf now that I'm retired than I did as Do an you agent. Really? And I, you know, I, not that I play a lot of golf as an agent. Yeah, I'm just very, very busy. <laughs> I thought that's all you guys did was play golf 24-7. Yeah, you know, no. No, no. I wish, <laughs> I wish, but no, not not now. It's you know, it's a busy time trying to get my own uh, consulting company up. And uh, can I give a shameless plug? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check Sh out shameless uh, plug. www.thegaijesgroup.com. Gaijes G Y G E S Group.com. Thegaijesgroup.com. Um, but yeah, you know, you know, it's exciting, exciting time to be out in the consulting world. Um, yeah. But great being here. Always a good conversation. We can always talk about things for for a long period of time fun yeah, <laughs> interesting stuff too things that, yep. you know and folks just one final programming note here is you don't have to have an answer to everything okay go on with your life don't let the absence of an answer or a solution stop you or hinder you from what you need to do today or tomorrow taking care of your family friends or yourself whatever it needs to be Continue on. I, I run into so many people that just say, well, I just can't get over this or I just can't get over that. Right. And we don't want that to be the case. I'm not. Am, am I OK that, you know, 9-11 happened? No. Am, am I OK that there's no definitive answer? Yes. Yes, I am. Am I OK that, you know, American Airlines 587 crashed right outside of my house no i'm not okay I'm, I'm i'm upset it bothers me to even think about it and all the people and seeing the bodies all over the place but i can live with the fact that i don't know why it happened and that's what we have to do with our lives god calls us to continue on no matter what it's going to be we have to be able to continue on with our lives to help other people and that's what we try to do so God bless you all. Thanks for stopping in to Reverse Deception Radio today. This is Reverse Deception Radio on the Veritas Radio Network, Crusade Channel. King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers.
it has today to meet an impending crisis menacing as any in the nation's history. It does not call a sound to arms, but it is nonetheless a call to patriotism and to higher ideals in citizenship. The patriotic citizenship of the country must take its stand and demand the wealth that it shall conduct its business lawfully, that it shall no longer furnish the most flagrant examples of persistent violation of statutes while invoking the protection of the court, that it shall not destroy the equality of opportunity, the right to the pursuit of happiness guaranteed by the Constitution, that it shall keep its powerful hands off from legislative manipulation, that it shall not corrupt, but shall obey the government that guards and protects its rights. Mere passive citizenship is not enough. Men must be aggressive for what is right if government is to be saved from those who are aggressive for what is wrong. on earth was all it said. There is work for everyone. The future is large. It is a glorious service. This service for the country. The call comes to every citizen. It is an unending struggle to make and keep government representative. Each one should come in a patriotic duty to build at least a part of his life into the life of his country, to do his share in the making of America according to the plan of the Father. Soldier rats away.